Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, my name is Glenn Ballard and you're listening to Eleven, the official theater podcast. Hello and welcome to Eleven, the official theatre podcast that brings the biggest stars and creatives together in one place to discuss life in the arts. Now he's a six-time Grammy winner that sold over 150 million records worldwide. As one of the most accomplished producers and songwriters of all time, he's the genius behind some of the most recognisable songs in music, film and musical history. He produced and co-wrote Alanis Morissette's infamous album Jagged Little Pill, amassing over 33 million sales worldwide, while collecting four Grammy Awards and was named Best Album of the Decade by Billboard magazine. And it has of course since gone on to get the theatrical treatment as it became Jagged Little Pill the Musical, featuring all the songs from the album, opening on Broadway in 2019 and again post-pandemic this year. It's directed by Diane Paulus with a book by Diablo Cody and was nominated for 15 Tony Awards. He's known to a new generation also as the man behind the official stage adaptation of Ghost the Musical, which debuted back in 2011 and has since headed to Broadway and toured the globe, writing the original music and lyrics. He's also a writer and producer for the likes of Quincy Jones, Aretha Franklin, Barbara Streisand, Dave Matthews, Shakira, Katy Perry, Adina Menzel, George Benson, Ringo Starr, Shaka Khan, Andrea Bocelli, and many, many more. Oh, and he's also created the songs for the stage version of the 1979 movie, The Rose. Yes, you know, the Bette Midler one. He also co-wrote and arranged Man in the Mirror for Michael Jackson, alongside the Grammy-winning and Oscar-nominated song, Believe, by Josh Grobin and featuring in the film, The Polar Express. And if that wasn't enough, his film work also includes writing original songs for Charlotte's Web, A Christmas Carol, The Mummy Returns, Valentine's Day and Disney's upcoming live-action retelling of Pinocchio. Oh, and one final huge project, adapting the infamous and arguably most recognisable franchise ever for the stage in Back to the Future, the musical. So, no pressure. Here now, in an exclusive conversation, we discuss adapting the also-brilliant Back to the Future for the stage with 17 new songs over a 14-year span to create and the challenges, both good and bad, of giving a musical voice to such a beloved and sacred franchise of movies. How he goes finding the right tone and style for some of these instantly recognisable movie musicals. Where he owes a lot to his time adapting Ghost for the stage, 
how even with all of his writing experience, working with some of the superstar talent still hasn't become normal. What we can expect from that stage adaptation of the 1979 movie The Rose, producing and co-writing Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill album, and what it's been like developing Disney's upcoming live-action retelling of Pinocchio, with that all-star cast including Cynthia Revo and Luke Evans. So all hail the master as its music superstar Glenn Ballard here right now on this, the next episode of Eleven, the official theatre podcast. To ensure the safety of all involved in this episode of Eleven, Glenn and I connected for this conversation digitally, so please forgive any brief moments while we wait for the internet to catch up. Enjoy. So please help me welcome to this, the next episode of Eleven. It's a music titan and icon. It's six-time Grammy winner. It's Glenn Ballard. Hi, Glenn. How are you? I'm great. Here in London, loving it. It's a very, very sunny day. I'm absolutely sweating already, but of course, with excitement, getting the opportunity to talk to such a legend and an icon like you. So thank you so much in advance a thousand times for your time today. It's really appreciated. And we get to have this conversation because something very, very exciting is happening within the world of theatre. Not just the fact that theatre is back, which feels like it's been gone for far too long, but we get something brand spanking new, which you've been at the heart at. And I'd love today to get the opportunity to talk about what we can all expect, a brand new musical. This is Back to the Future, the musical, something that I believe, and I hope I'm right in saying this, is 14 years in the making. At least 14 years. Certainly the musical is 14 years, yes. I mean, it's it's gestation is, like many theatre projects, it's longer than most. And especially a film that is so iconic, we had to be very, very careful about how we did this, you know. There are too many people who know and love the movie to not respect th that deep, deep sort of vein of appreciation that's already existing. So we just wanted to put Back to the Future, the movie, the essence of that into a, a musical theater piece. And it just takes a while to figure it out, you know? And this is what I'm right in saying, that this is not trying to be the film on stage. This is very much going in its own direction, obviously paying homage very politely to that film you just referenced. Well, I think in every way it is Back to the Future, but it's on stage, but it is not the movie, but everything in the movie informs everything on the stage. You know, making movies and, and the whole medium of, of cinema comprises hundreds and thousands of edits. When you're sitting in a theater, you have maybe 10 sets at, at best. So there's your 10 edits, right? So it's a completely different medium. I mean, look, when we first approached it, looking at Back to the Future as this time travel science fiction comedy, it was like, how do we make this on stage? Because there's a lot of stuff that happens in the movie you can't do on stage. But the further we got into it, it was really about this brilliant script, this brilliant plot, this brilliant idea of going back in time and meeting your parents and somehow changing something in that to make the future better, you know? So it took us a while to realize that it's actually the perfect structure for a two act musical. I mean, most movies are three acts. Most musicals are two, sometimes one. So it sort, sort of hit us about a year into it that the 50s and the 80s is perfectly bifurcated into like a two-act musical. Certainly from a songwriting standpoint, the flavor of the 50s music was something that was very important to reflect. Mm -hmm. And the flavor of the 80s music was very important to reflect. And they're wildly different. There's still music, but the different eras in music, right? Th three decades in pop music is like geologic time. I mean, you know, there's so much that happens and changes. So, but once we arrived at this sort of epiphany, oh my God, it's perfect. We have the 50s and the 80s and we're going back and forth. It's a perfect two-act structure. So that was sort of the, the overarching idea that, that from a musical standpoint, it was, oh boy, 
joy. This is great. Continually refresh the palette of the musical genre and never have to be one kind of music, you know? So I guess it's sort of a, a simple question, but you mentioned that it takes at least 14 years of your time so far to get to this point. I guess, what's happened within that time period? Why is it not, for example, easier than perhaps we think? No, I mean, it doesn't normally take 14 years, but I don't know what normally is. I think <laughs> when I say 14 years, I mean, we weren't working on it every day for 14 years. I think I've yeah. done like 50 other projects in the meantime, but we all kept it on our plate, right? It was not It was maybe on the back burner sometimes, but we just kept feeling like we need to keep taking swings at this until it resonates. And so, you know, I mean... 14 years sounds like a daunting thing, but I just think we believed in it all along the way. The movie year by year continues to add new fans. What's so amazing about it is that young people today still like Back to the Future the movie. So, and, and, and they, didn't, they weren't alive in the 80s or the 50s, but it's appealing. It, it's, it's really all about just respecting all of that. And I was so amazed and just humbled as a fan of the films, just by the reaction when it was announced that it was going to happen on stage. And so often when these, you see movie musical adaptations, people are obviously understandably very protective of the original material, but I think it's pretty fair to say unanimously that the reaction was, this is genius. And I absolutely support it. And I can imagine for you as a creative, you're reassured by that. You know, people are looking forward to this and they're very much looking forward to supporting it as well. That's probably the most important feedback we could have ever gotten early on. And I credit Bob Gale, the co-writer of the movie and the producer of the movie with making sure that this very rich, loyal fan base was brought into the process with us, kind of. I mean, honestly, at our very first showcase 2017, where we just presented songs as kind of a concert. Bob Gale made sure that there were people who were in the fan club, people who were back to the future, you know, fanatics. We wanted to find out if it really, you know, offended them on any level. And <laughs> the interesting thing is after that first showcase in 2017, they all loved it. We didn't even have any bit of the show. We were just playing the songs from back to the future, right? And we had no acting, nothing. I mean, basically what we did in this first song showcase was really songs that were just character songs. Like everybody had a song, right? We wanted to find out if Doc Brown singing was going to actually offend people or, if, you know, I mean, Marty, we know is a singer. He's supposed to be in the pinhead. So Marty singing is a, a much easier buy. Everyone else singing? Let's find out. And so we sort of gave every character a song and everybody went, yeah, those are the people I know from the movie. And so that was like hugely encouraging to us because we felt like, okay, the characters themselves, that's what really we're working off of initially, mm -hmm. that and the great plot and the great movie. We couldn't do a bunch of car chases and stuff like that. Although you'll be amazed, I think, to see what we do on stage. I mean, we never really wanted to have the cinematic element initially, but at the end of the day, there is some cinema involved in this show. Really so, so delicious and kind of a crazy hybrid. It's so very exciting, honestly. It's just, it just, I think when it works, it works. And just the way you're describing it and especially the feedback, I know that you had some time, but he was in Manchester, sort of out of the West End to get to develop it and see, I guess see how it goes down. And the, the feedback is just astronomically positive. And it's really is sort of the talk of the town, you know, that famous phrase of something fresh and new. And I think the West End is certainly dying to find something else to fall in love with. And this show does include, I believe, 17 songs in there, which comes from your genius mind and your genius hands, which I wondered if you could just talk me through, I guess, musically, what does a show like this sound like? Well, first of all, it was so essential to, to, to me and to the creators here 
that we included Alan Silvestri's score at the very center of the movie because it's one of the greatest scores ever written. A few notes from, from Al's score, it's like a DeLorean. It takes you right back to it. So the, for me, I, I was invited into this project and my first order of business was to take the Hippocratic Oath at first, do no harm to this great music because the music is so good already. They aren't songs. Of course, we, we inherited some great songs, which we love, you know, Back in Time, The Power of Love, Johnny Be Good, Earth Angel. Those songs are in the show because I would be stupid to leave those songs out. Songs and everybody, they're so so embedded in the movie, but we're not depending on them. We had to do the other work to create the dry, you know, songs that were storytelling songs. And so, but first and foremost, it was about the score. And so our first order of business was really to create a song, a big opening number around the iconic theme. So it took us a minute to figure that out. That was the first song Alan and I wrote. It was based on his theme. When we played it for Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, it was this, thumbs up. Okay, that's a great place to start because that is definitely Back to the Future. And then we had to go into the deeper dive, which was, okay, now we need to create songs for situations and characters. But I always have that score in my mind when we're doing it. I mean, honestly, the score informs all of it. How much did your time working on Ghost and your experience putting that on stage, I guess, influence what you do now? Were there things that you learned from that experience that worked, that perhaps didn't, that sort of helped you along the way that you were able to implement now? For me, it was, I don't, I'm not sure I would have been able to understand it without having the Ghost experience. And I sort of had a master teacher, Matthew Warch is a great director. I learned so much from him. I, I'm so deeply grateful to him for, for teaching us how to take a movie and put it on stage because I kind of learned it in a master class with Matthew Watches. Yeah, it was hugely important to me. I, I'm, the serendipitous element for me is that on Ghost, the book writer was the screenwriter, Bruce Rubin. Yep. So any questions that we had regarding the truest nature of what, you know, the essence of the DNA of it, any questions that we had, Bruce Rubin could instantly answer. Would this character say this? Does this make sense? I know it's not in a movie, but does this character do this? And Bruce would say yes or no. And we had the exact same experience with Bob Gale because he co-wrote the movie. As we're going through it, we're trying to understand the characters. And by the way, Bob has this deep mythology about Hill Valley, the rich vein at the root of this it goes all the way back. I mean, Bob has got characters, you know, developed all the way back to the 30s. OK, we had this rich vein of information about what we were doing, and we never really had to call somebody and say, do you think? No, Bob was in the room with us. So it was the greatest gift ever because we we weren't we knew that if the creator didn't like it, we needed to, to do something else. And I think the beauty of Ghost, I think what Ghost taught the industry and us as fans and lovers of the show and of musical theatre is that there isn't a specific sound aimed at what works in live theatre anymore. I think the genius of Ghost was that it very much had its own sound. It's very different to the original film. And therefore it felt like a piece that stands on its own. You know, Ghost the musical was, of course, very separate to the film. And it had this entire soundtrack that, as you reference here with Back to the Future, of course, plays homage and reference to some of the iconic songs, but it also has its own identity. And I can imagine for you as a creative, having that freedom to do your own thing while also having an influence, that feels like a luxury. It feels nice. It feels like a bit of a blanket. I mean, it's a great gift as far as I'm concerned. I mean, look, you're working with characters and material that people already know and love. So you kind of just have to not mess that up, you know? <laughs> There's so much you don't already have to earn. What's already been earned, you have to respect. And it would be foolish not to. And it's, it's just a little bit of a nuance that takes place when you do that. What about when songs like With You 
and here right now and rain hold on and I'm out of here. I mean, we could literally list the whole score here, but what about when those songs become standalone pieces where they become staples of musical theater? Because with you, it's been performed on America's Got Talent, Britain's Got Talent, it's everywhere. Like people adore it. From a songwriting standpoint, as a songwriter, you, of course you hope for such a thing to happen. The fact that it can live outside of the show, but be the show, every time somebody does with you, it goes back to the very to the very beginning of the, uh, it, it being in the musical. So. Of course, anytime that happens, I, I can't I can't complain. <laughs> Definitely not. And being crystal ball at the ready, but do you think you have perhaps one, two, three, or perhaps 17 versions of your with you's out there and your successes that you think could have the potential to take off? Yes. That's the answer we like to hear. That's definitely the answer. Well, it makes it very exciting for me. I mean, it's it's just such it's such, like I keep saying, I know it sounds sort of silly to keep repeating it, but it's such an inter- interesting concept for a stage show that I think that's this the curiosity I think that will bring people in and, and obviously the film itself and, and your great work. And I think people, I think people are going to love it. I really do. We put the show on in Manchester, 14 performances and then COVID shut us down. But I have to say the 14 nights we were in there and one matinee on a Saturday, people were blown out of the theatre. We had standing ovations every night. And I mean, that's that's when you know you got it, you know. I may think it's great. Someone else may think it's great. But this audience collectively responded. And it was the most probably the most gratifying thing I've ever seen. Because, I mean, you spend all this time, all this money, all this, like, hope. And you put it in front of an audience. And if it's tepid, eh. But they were not tepid. They just felt it, you know. And I think this, there's a lot of emotion in this show that I don't think people realize is there. Because it's really funny. It's really fun, but on some on this other level, you you find some emotions that you you didn't know these characters. You're hearing from the sort of deepest place for each from each character. You're not allowed to do that in a movie. It doesn't accommodate that. So you sort of get this deep internal monologue close up of every character when they step up to sing. Because if they're not singing something that's really meaningful to them, they shouldn't be singing. That's the wonderful thing about theater is that you get to reveal so much more, I think, of internal motivation. I think it just gives you a deeper understanding of what's what's happening. What about when it, that process happened slightly differently. So for example, if we take Jagged Little Pill, of course you had huge success, many Grammy Awards with Alanis with that. What happens when that work gets a second life and then you end up having 14 Tony nominations, which is actually an insane amount of numbers. Like, is it like one less than Hamilton? Like, come on, that's crazy and much, very much to your congratulations. But what about when your work gets that second life? Did you ever think that perhaps it had that in it to, you know, to be on stage? Was it always meant to be? In 1995, when we made the record, we sort of made this record together. It's just like a little handmade demo record that we made, not under the auspices of any record company. So, of course, I had no idea that we were writing a stage musical. (laughs) I thought we were writing an album. For me, you know, the Jagged Little Pill, the musical, is just like waking up and it's Christmas morning and you have all these presents because I do believe in Santa Claus now, you know because I had nothing to do with the idea of making this into a stage musical. This, I mean, our producer Vivek Tiwari and, you know, uh, Diablo Cody, who wrote this incredible story around the songs and Diane Paulus, who directed it, it's all their vision. And so for this, I didn't have to sweat anything. I just got a call saying, would you allow us to do this? And it was like, yeah, they sent me workshop tapes. 
I made a few suggestions, but basically I couldn't have been less involved. I was slightly involved, but I'm doing a million other things and I keep finding, you know, workshop tapes of what they're doing in Boston and it blew me away, you know? So of course, when I finally got to see it in Boston at the American Repertory Theater at Harvard, uh, I was in tears. I was actually in tears. Alanis's parents were sitting in front of me. We were all in tears. We couldn't, it, we just turned around and looked at each other and it's like, how did this happen? Because for me, first of all, it's a great band playing it. I mean, when we made Jag Little Pill, I was playing most everything. So already it sounds better than what I did. And then at times when you when you hear 16 people on stage singing, you learn. It's like, holy shit. I mean, I, I, I could never have dreamed of anything like this. So this is to me just being lucky. But it's also about the integrity of songwriting. I think the songs were written in a certain time, but they're living in another time. And I think something you referenced earlier, the timelessness of certain songs. I think we proved it on Jagged Little Pill and Hugh New. And this isn't, I believe, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, but this isn't the first time that you've had some of your work put into a musical. Of course, there was Man in the Mirror with Thriller Live, which I can imagine, again, must have been quite a crazy experience, your song in a stage show. I mean, listen, any record producer, songwriter, whoever gets someone to go make a stage musical out of a record they've made is is very, very lucky. <laughs> because I, I would never in, in my wildest dreams have thought this was going there. I guess it's the beauty of music, isn't it? It connects in so many different ways and it connects to so many different people in so many different ways that you're never quite I don't really feel like it ever has an end point and of course sometimes stage musicals of albums work sometimes unfortunately they don't but I love this possibility of you know what could happen I think that's exciting I think if the songs are good enough they can have an afterlife if it's a track there's a lot of music right now that are just tracks kind of like a track you've even heard so there's not enough composition there whatever but if you write in songs that have melodies lyrics chords some kind of point of view, anything can happen with that because songs, really great songs are, are as powerful as anything in the entertainment phylum, as powerful. They're short, dense, compact, and they can do stuff to you emotionally that absolutely nothing else can. Music can hit you without you thinking about it. I mean, you, to watch a movie, you kind of have to pay attention, turn it on, like for any other medium. But music can, you can just hear a song while you're doing something else and it can just find its way into your emotional state instantly. So it's, a, it's an act of leisure demand. It's, it's magic. And I feel like I'm learning to be a magician every day because I write songs. I know that another project that you're working on, and I appreciate that you may be very limited in what you can tell me, is the adaptation of The Rose for the stage, which, of course, Queen Bette Midler was, of course, part of. Um, I guess, how, how is that process going? And I guess, what can you tell me about where you're at so far? It's going really, really well. I'm writing it all myself on a music sample, and I've written... I think 16 songs for the show. There's one song I didn't write called The Rose, which we're definitely going to use. <laughs> uh, and so I'm actually, I'm waiting for a book writer named Meg Miroshnik to do, deliver me the book any day now. And I'm so excited about it. I mean, I, because I've, I've written so many songs for it already. First of all, I didn't really love the songs in the movie with all due respect. I mean, they're not memorable, except The Rose is. The Rose is not in the movie. It's actually at the end. And so <laughs> she does not perform it in the movie as you, you know, and most people, when they think of the movie, they think she's doing The Rose. No, 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 no. She did it after that. For me, it's, it's, it's exciting because we're actually 
updating it. This is okay. one where we take, we're taking the liberty to update it because it was sort of the Janis Joplin story, but sort of not. I don't, I don't want it to be sort of anything. I want it to be what this is. So it's not going to be the sort of Janis Joplin story, but it's the same character, the same situations, but it's slightly different. So that's all I can say. But we have a great team. You know, so we're just waiting to, uh, we could even get a showcase or at least a workshop going relatively soon. You have so many other amazing credits to your name and it would literally take me all day. And I feel like I'm doing a complete disservice to your legendary and iconic career to, to go through them. And I did mention, of course, your six Grammy Awards at the start, but some of the people that you've worked with, just to name like two or three of Quincy Jones, Aretha Franklin, Barbara Streisand, my idol, Adina Menzel, Shaka Khan. Does it become normal and i i hate this question normally but i think it's very appropriate now does it become normal having you working with those people and having those people performing your work has that sort of become the norm to you now it's never normal i'm always thrilled honoring the talent that I'm, i've been blessed to be with i just try to bring my a plus game to to the table every single day because i know how hard it is to do great work the number of great artists that i've been able to collaborate with when I look back at it, it kind of freaks me out. And so if I look at it as sort of in aggregate, I can't even, I can't deal with it. It has to be one day at a time. And there's a certain moment when if you're working with a legend or not, you got to do the work. I mean, I've been intimidated maybe a few times. I've, I've worked with Ringo Starr a few times. Yes. And when I'm sitting with him, I'm going, oh shit, I don't know how I can get through this. Especially when he says, you know, Marcus coming in tomorrow to work with me, Paul. And it's like, don't tell me that. Don't <laughs> tell me that, Richie. Don't tell me that. But uh, apart from Ringo Starr, I mean, look, I used to hang out with Michael Jackson in the studio and he was the sweetest you know, generous person to be around in the studio. And I learned so much with just from him about his commitment to, I mean, he, he was working all the time. He was dancing all the time. And so I was a sponge. It was like, oh God. But let me talk about Quincy Jones. He was the greatest influence of my career. Uh, the fact that I got to work early in my career with him and to see him making some of the greatest records of all time, to help him make some of those records, to be writing and helping to produce. It's my great education. If I thought that you couldn't tell me too much about The Rose, I definitely know you won't be able to tell me much about this, but forgive me for asking, but how is Pinocchio going? It's going great. It's going great. I've done a bunch of movies with Robert Zemeckis. Alan Silvestri's in all the movies with Robert Zemeckis. And so to be reunited with him to sort of create a song score, we did it with the Polar Express Yes. 2005. And so we kind of have been there together to do that. And we understand the challenges of what putting songs in a movie is. It's, it's not the easiest thing now because the audiences don't necessarily understand movie musicals. There are not that many of them. So it, it's, 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 it's a real challenge to figure that out. But again, Pinocchio, the original, had three iconic songs in it. When You Wish Upon a Star, we got, I Got No Strings, and High Diddle DD. Of course, we're going to use those songs. And so it kind of, you, you know that, but everything else is new. Of course, it doesn't hurt that we have Tom Hanks as Geppetto, and he's doing two songs in the, in the film. And Luke Evans as the coachman, who's incredible performer. Cynthia Erivo, who's singing When You Wish, when you wish Upon a Star. So again, it's an embarrassment of riches. We have some of the most incredibly talented people in the world, one of the greatest directors, and he's telling us to write all these songs. It's like, okay. So it's really turned out well. I mean, we have a lot of work to do, but that's the movie business. But, you know, honestly, to make this movie during the pandemic was no small feat. It's added to the whole kind of like stress of it, but it's, it's actually turned out great. So 
I'm very sanguine about it. My final question for you, and we've spoken about so many different things, so many different variances that you've had the opportunity to be able to do with your work, people that you've worked with, opportunities that you've had, accolades that you very much deserve. But I wondered, is there a particular thing still left on the wish list that, you know, 150 million copies that you've sold of songs later, you still think that's cool, but I still want to try that. What's left on the wish list for you? Oh, several more musicals. I can tell you that. A couple of movie musicals, which we have in development. I'm working with a band out of France called Hyphen Hyphen. Please check out Hyphen Hyphen. I think they're going to be the next big superstar band. I've got a little album myself coming out called The Midnight Collection this year, which is the songs that you have not heard from Glenn Ballard or Glenn Ballard. And <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I feel like I'm just getting started. You know, I try to stay healthy and so that I can keep doing it because I, I feel like I have another 35 years to go. Glenn, this can sound really disingenuous to keep saying it repeatedly, but this has been such an honor and a privilege to get this time to talk to you. So thank you so much. Well, I'm so grateful for all the research you've done and, and you're so knowledgeable about what I've done. And I'm, I'm grateful. I, you know, I work in the shadows. I'm a songwriter. So when anybody shines the spotlight over there, I'm going, you're actually paying attention to what I did. You see the little credit written by Glenn Ballard. That's like, because I, you know, I don't expect it, you know. Forever an icon for me. So thank you so much. Best of luck with Back to the Future. Um, it's going to be phenomenal. Just get ready for the ride. That's all I can say, but good luck. And I hope to see you very soon. All the best. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Eleven, the official theatre podcast. Find out more about Eleven at elevenpodcast.com or by the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.